welcome to a new episode of Carpe Diem. I'm your host, Luca Rocchini. Today I'm going to have a chat with Blaine Renex from Dublin, Ireland. Blaine is a director of photography specialized in shooting commercials, brand films, corporates and documentaries. He graduated in creative media and video and film production in Ireland, while he directed his first zero-budget film. In 2012, he had an internship in Budapest and traveled to Tanzania to shoot the first of several documentaries in Africa. In 2013, Blaine moved to London, where he worked as a camera technician while freelancing as a camera assistant and shooting award-winning short films. Back to Dublin, he began to work in corporate films. Since then, he took up a residency in, with uh, Tani Arc, a creative video agency specializing in commercials and brand films. We're going to have a chat about his first experiences and latest projects, the challenges of working as DOP in Dublin and London, and shooting during lockdown a music show seen by 2.5 million people worldwide. Hello, Blaine. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, How are you? It's good to see your face. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Firstly, let's give, a, um, let's give us a bit of background. Um, how did it all start and what were your first experiences? Right, um, so I guess you can go back to when I first went to college. I uh, wasn't a guy who ever planned to go to college. Um, when I was in secondary school, I kind of had a few passions in life. One was running. I was a pretty competitive athlete. One was uh, the army, it was in the reserves, and that was something that I was thinking about doing, uh, believe it or not. Another was I was working part-time as a carpenter with my uncle, so if I was going to do anything for money, it was probably going to be carpentry. And then the other was computer games. I was a massive computer game nerd. Uh, so when time came to do the Leaving Cert in Ireland, equivalent of A-levels in the UK, I think. Is that right? A-levels? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Neither, I neither, haven't neither, studied neither, here. Neither of so. us know. <laughs> I studied in Ireland as well. Some of your <laughs> astute listeners will correct me. Um, yeah, the, the A-level, I think. Whatever, yeah. the last thing before you go to college anyway. And uh, basically from, uh, you know, my parents' suggestion that I go to college, at least try it, uh, is why I did it. And yeah, when it came to picking a course, I, I, I found, I discovered that uh, Ireland's first games development course was opening up in Dundalk, which is only 45 minutes away from where I live. So I figured if I'm going to do anything, I'll try that. Um, it didn't occur to me that I'm absolutely shit at maths and uh, it's a programming course and those two things are important bits of information. But uh, I, I didn't really think about all that and I thought, okay, cool, computer games, I'll do that. Um, so I tried it, I failed, um, and I, I, the only way I got through as far as I did, which was like to the end of second year, was because I, you know, got my mates to do my programming uh, assignments for me. Um, but anyway, then I got that far and uh, I 
realized that even if I fluke my way through college and, 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 and lie and cheat, uh, I'm then going to go out into the real world and have to be a programmer for the rest of my life. So um, I quickly decided that that wasn't for me. And well, I say quickly, it took me two years to figure it out, but you know what I mean? I, when I decided it, I needed to quit that. So uh, I, at the same time, um, I was having way too much of a good time in Dundalk to leave. Uh, in the end, I loved college, uh, which was kind of funny, but you know, it was because of the college life, not because of the academics. Uh, and then I switched into multimedia because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to stay in Dundalk and, you know, I wanted to do something creative, something digital. So it was just the only kind of, it was the catch all course. So I did that. Uh, and then as part of that, there was some video production modules and I picked up a camera for the first time, kind of felt like, okay, this is something I can get into. And uh, yeah, from there I started shooting. I, as you mentioned, directed a zero budget war movie, which was completely nuts and sucked up my entire life for probably about two years because I did, I just pumped a lot of heart and soul into it. And I did exactly what people at the time advised me not to do. And I would advise anyone now not to do, which is to put a lot of time, effort and resources and money into a project that, you know, you, you are writing and directing yourself, which is something you should never ever do. But I did it and the movie was absolutely shit, uh, to be honest, but uh, it was a really, really, really interesting experience and a massive learning curve. And I learned way more than I ever learned in college. Uh, so I did all that. And then, um, yeah, the rest is pretty much as you described it. I went to London for a couple of years. I worked freelance in the corporate world for quite a while, still do to a certain extent. Um, and kind of eventually did a lot of AC. And uh, when I was in London, I learned from some pretty good DPs. I would, I'd, 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 I'd even say as far as you, uh, Luca. Uh, you learned something from me. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah. Something. I'm sure I learned something somewhere. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> no, really, uh, I worked with a lot of cool people in London. Uh, and, you know, did, uh, did some interesting kind of ACing, DPing stuff. And in the sense that, like, you know, I remember I focus pulled for you, you focus pulled for me. Uh, there was Phil Marozov, who you know as well. I focus pulled for him, he focus pulled for me. There was a lot of kind of uh, um, tag teaming and camera department between a group of people that I worked with over there, and it was really cool. I haven't really had that since I came back, but anyway, that's I miss that. Um, but yeah, as a result, I got to work with a lot of DPs in a way that, you know, a lot of other DPs probably wouldn't have been able to do. So that was kind of the best part of living in London. Uh, I worked in a kit room, as you said, uh, because freelancing in London was brutal and I was poor and I joined the kit house to learn. And I figured I might as well, I might meet some people there, etc., etc. And it was actually a really good experience. I did learn a lot about cameras and the technical side of things. Um, didn't really meet anyone that I ended up working with really, but uh, at least I got to shoot a, short, a few short films with like some very expensive equipment that I otherwise would have had to pay for. Uh, and then, yeah, then I started shooting proper, let's say. I was always shooting throughout all that time, a few projects here and there myself, you know, uh, short films and corporate stuff, small scale stuff. But uh, I came back to Ireland, 
and I had one interesting experience where I was a focus puller on a job with a company called Tiny Arc. I was turned up on the morning to sh- to, of the shoot. It was a TV commercial for Borden Amona, and which is a big company in Ireland. And I turned up on the morning of the shoot. The DP was sick, so I got an opportunity to step up. Uh, so I threw myself at that. I shot it. It went pretty well, I think. Uh, and pretty much from that experience and one or two other jobs, Tiny Arc eventually uh, took me on full time as a resident DP. And that's now a bit over three years ago. And I continued throughout all that time and continue now to freelance. But really, that's like maybe 20% of the time. Most of the work I do now is with Tiny Arc. Uh, at the moment at least um, and I've shot a lot of commercials with them and a whole range of other projects uh, and more recently due to the pandemic took a major pivot which I hate is the, I hate the word but it really does apply here uh, into live streams which I guess you'll probably want to talk about too yeah we'll chat about a bit, a bit later um Let's uh, go back a little. Actually, I forgot about your army thing. And that's interesting because, as people know, uh, the work in film sets that has to work in kind of army kind of uh, setup in the sense like uh, you have the hierarchy is very important in filmmaking. So, w- w- was it that important to, le- to learn when to talk and when to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure. I mean, I guess I had uh, I had some actual military experience before I ever got into film. Maybe that was uh, <laughs> maybe that was relevant. I never thought of it that way, but maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, look. Uh, when I when I shot, shot that film, I mean, I was directing. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. You know, I was only a kid. Uh, I mean, I was probably twenty three or four or whatever. But you know, I was still. I had no experience. You know. Um, and I was very lucky that a lot of people joined me on the journey and we got the thing made, uh, but it was, I think hierarchy was, was loose uh, at the time. The only thing that wasn't loose was my kind of um, creative control, which was kind of the problem, to be honest. I wish I had listened to more people uh, and made it a bit more of a collaboration because then the whole, then product would have turned out a bit better, you know? Um, but these are, these are things you learn with experience. I think ever, yeah. I think ever since then, to be honest, well, I, I learned two things. First of all, that I don't want to be a director, <laughs> which was probably the most important lesson. But secondly, that, uh, you know, the whole kind of theory and uh, principle of the director being some sort of autorial sort of superpower that cannot be questioned and like you know this is like it's the director's vision and that's it i mean it's total bullshit you know you learn as a dp uh, and any other i guess head of department how important the, all the heads of department are on film you know uh, where a director is the guy who essentially guy or woman who is essentially makes everyone else work well together uh, that's basically the job and to make sure that the basic story and vision that they have takes shape but it's up to all the other people to make it happen you know I didn't fully appreciate yeah I didn't fully appreciate that when I was making that film you know 
And um, when in Ireland, you were still in Ireland, uh, and you, you you stopped working on documentaries as well, right? Yeah. So um, one thing I suppose I skipped over there when I was doing the little summary of career so far is uh, when I was leaving Dundalk finally after many many years uh, that summer I got two like really cool experiences um, I was extremely lucky to do so uh, one was that the director John Moore who's from Dundalk he's a big Hollywood director directed like Max Payne and Flight of the Phoenix and all these other kind of action movies. Uh, he was directing the new Die Hard movie at the time, A Good Day to Die Hard. And he decided that he would do an internship where he would bring over a student from Ireland and he picked his hometown, because why not? Uh, so there was this competition came up in the college where we had to submit a showreel for a one minute showreel and uh, some sort of essay about some theoretical stuff, that, which I'm pretty sure that the college added. Uh, but he wanted to see a showreel. And as it happened, I had just done this war action movie, zero budget production. And I had all these kind of stupid firefight scenes and everything, you know? So I was able to put that forward as a showreel and I got the place. So I went out to Budapest onto production of A Good Day to Die Hard for three weeks total. But what also happened was that the same summer I was, uh, I, had, I had signed up for this job with the volunteer society in the college, which was going out to Tanzania uh, to do this kind of volunteer program. And it was essentially to go out and shoot a documentary. It was more like shoot a promo video for the college volunteer society but I took it as I'm going to shoot this as a documentary and try to make something nice and something cool for the portfolio etc etc so uh, that I was on set in Budapest for two weeks and then I was going to Tanzania for two weeks and when I was getting towards the end of the two weeks in Budapest the director says to me oh would you like to stay an extra week and I was like, uh, I really would, but I actually am going to Tanzania to shoot a documentary. And he was like, oh, that's really cool. So he instead, he let me go to Tanzania and then he flew me back out to Budapest for a week after the two weeks in Tanzania. So that was all really cool. And like, you know, you always been a busy man. And <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this was like, again, before I had done anything serious, you know, it was just a really cool, really yeah, cool, cool. Summer, a, really, waiting. a really cool summer uh, for me. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of life lessons as well. I mean, I, I I I loved Africa straight away, and I ended up going back two more times to shoot ducks, um, kind of through the same organizations or, or 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 related organizations that I had gone with the first time. So it was kind of clients who knew clients, if you know what I mean. Uh, so I ended up going three times: once to Zambia, one, actually that was with Irish Times, and then once to. Uh, again to Tanzania, so twice to Tanzania total. So anyway, um, the other thing that was a major learning curve there that summer was that at the time I went to the Die Hard set, I had never been on any sort of big production, you know? So you know when you're like 
an inexperienced kid and you arrive up on this massive production it's all very intimidating and it's all like American crew and everything is really it's still intimidating no. yeah yeah sure, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is I haven't been <laughs> on one since but, uh, yeah so anyway uh, my idols at that time were the camera assistants who were working on this production because these were the best people in the world at what they do um, but I remember talking to one of them I won't name him, but I remember talking to one of them who was a very, very, very highly regarded uh, camera assistant. And he had only been home uh, for two weekends in six months. And he had like a wife and two kids, you know, and it just made me realize that, I mean, I'm like, a, you know, born and bred Irish Catholic from the country, you know, like for me, family is everything. So to think that this was the future that I was trying to get myself into, uh, I realized that it wasn't for me. Uh, even though I really loved ACing, I felt like I needed to do something where I was going to be more in control of the jobs that I was doing and more control of the type of productions I was going to work on uh, and still hopefully be, you know, top of the game, if you like, you know. To be top of the game as an AC was to be working on these productions. To be top of the game as a DP was more like doing work that you feel creatively passionate about, you know. Uh, so it seemed like a more viable route. So that's where I started focusing. Even though I was doing a lot of ACing in London and stuff, I always knew that it wasn't going to be the long-term plan, you know, that I wanted to shoot. And I suppose it was kind of ironic that I went on this production uh, this the biggest production I've ever worked on. I went there to learn a bit about camera department and ACing, and walked away realizing that it wasn't for me. <laughs> but you know, that's that's a, another important uh, lesson, I guess. Yes, yes. It's good. It's it's good to be able to go through that, you know. And yeah, it's it's a positive experience anyway. So. Uh, before engaging maybe too much. But again, like what, what, what have you ever learned going back to documentary times, like shooting those documentaries in Africa? What, or what did you, what did it bring with you like from that? Um, I mean, I suppose the, the approach where you're going out with a bag and that's it you and like there's no like the first time I went I think um, yeah every time actually I went to shoot a doc in Africa I was completely on my own technically uh, I didn't have any sound recorders I didn't have uh, any support technically um, I was always with somebody in the sense of a director or whatever um, or the client in the case of like um, Irish Times piece but you know it was it was a great way to learn how to be independent because you're going into a situation where you're out for two weeks or a week or two weeks whatever it was three weeks in, in one case and I don't even know if I'm going to be able to go to a shop to get batteries never mind uh, you know if a lens breaks and where do I get a replacement lens you know it's completely different than shooting at home or shooting anywhere in Europe or whatever, where you know that you can always go to a rental house or whatever, you know. Uh, out in Africa, these things are not options. So you kind of have to be completely self-contained and set up for a few months. So technically it was quite interesting and different. 
Um, but also like just in terms of, you know, documentary is all about capturing the world around you and being true to it, you know, and capturing truth, if you like, um, or at least a version of the truth. Uh, and there was nothing more kind of, a few things in my life have kind of made me realize how kind of prejudiced we can be about parts of the world or how we can kind of have ideas that unless we have experience of um, would need to be changed, you know, and the experiences I've had in Africa were like just massively positive and really, I, mean, I fell in love with the place. Uh, at least with Tanzania and Zambia is all I've seen, you know, but I, you know what I mean? Like uh, these countries that I knew nothing about or had an idea of what Africa was like beforehand. Um, so there was nothing like shooting a documentary to sort of not just go to a place, but to go there and to try to understand a little bit about it and to try to capture, capture an essence of it without sort of shoehorning it into a certain perspective, if that makes sense without like uh, playing into the stereotypes. Um, mm. So yeah, I guess that was something. Uh, it, was, it was just, yeah, there were all positive experiences in different ways each time I went. Um, but yeah, I guess the thing that stands out the most is like that whole thing of going out as a lone shooter and trying to be, trying to get what you can. I mean, none of the projects were amazing in terms of results. None of them won awards or anything, you know? So it wasn't like... Um, doesn't mean anything, though. I know, but what I mean is it doesn't... It hasn't made a huge difference to my career, let's say, that I've done these things, you know? They were kind of happening over here while I was doing commercial work over there, and, and you, no one ever really asked me, like, oh, well, what is that cool documentary you did in Africa, you know? But it was, it was a really valuable life experience for me, you know? There's also like, you know, two things you can take from shooting the home entry. It's like, uh, you actually, you might learn that you don't need anything by your camera and your lens, how to be minimalist, right? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. It's actually, you should be able to make a good picture, you know, a natural environment. Uh, and the second thing you could, you can also bring with you, you know, this experience uh, on, on, yeah, on kind of com commercial work as well in the future, you know, so. Yeah, for sure. And even like your, your, you know, your foreign eye, you know, like you have your eye that can explore uh, a new world. It, I think that, like for me as well, like that was very important when I, especially with photography, you know, doing street photography, like when I, mostly like uh, when I traveled to South, South America, that's something you know you don't know, but you're gonna bring with you in the sense of like when you find yourself in a new environment and the fact that you have to shoot for hours every day, uh, get so much train on that, like how to be quick and to get. Yeah, yeah. And watch, watching people and preempting pre human behavior, you know, like uh, you kind observing. of- Observing learn how to watch people to kind of predict what they're going to do next because you don't want to stage anything so you have to try to capture it in the moment but like it takes a little time to get a camera out of a bag and onto your shoulder so learning how to predict what's going to happen and of course there's a little bit of staging you know like you'd set up a situation where you know that 
X, Y, and Z is going to happen. But trying to be conscious not to force anything as well uh, is is part of the part of the struggle there, you know. But yeah, it's, it's, it, PM, it, 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 yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Catch the moment. It's interesting what you what you said about uh, you know like the approach and how it would kind of makes you learn as a DP because I suppose one thing I didn't think too much about, which is very true, is that the I, I always you know you work with lots of different directors as a DP and some of them are very um, emotionally driven and some of them are very technically driven and I'm always you know, there's one guy I work with a lot and he's, he's a technical genius um, and he always wants to do something that is, you know, flashy and cool. Uh, and a lot of the time, depending on the project, you have to rein him in and say, you know, like, let's, let's stay true to the subject matter here, you know? Like, you don't do this because you can, you do it because you should, you know? So, like, uh, I think that that whole approach... Is, inform- is, is, is informed a lot by documentary experience. I think that's why, you know, no matter what kind of DP you are, it's good to shoot at least some documentaries to get to learn some of that, like how to deal with real world uh, subjects um, and treat them considerately, you know? I think that you'll learn about, a lot about how to, how to emotively engage an audience uh, with stuff that you don't have to set up necessarily, you know? If that makes sense, I might be waffling a bit now. <laughs> yeah, we're all going off. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the idea. Um, no, not going off. <clears throat> Sorry. All right. Um, do you want to tell us about your like your experience in London, like uh, apart from shooting uh, with friends and uh, with in the rental house? Like, uh, I remember we met actually. You were working there. Um, as a camera technician, like, what, what did you see? What, what, what's, what was going on in there? Like, uh, what's the world about? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the rental house, well, where to start? Yeah, so like, I guess what I was kind of hoping for from that experience was like to, you know, learn a bit about cameras technically, you know, uh, how they work, how to troubleshoot problems, uh, how to rig cameras for different situations, etc., etc. But it totally depended on the project whether we as camera technicians were prepping the cameras or whether the ACs were coming in to do it. And when the ACs were coming in to do it, there was like always the hope that oh, I get talking to this guy and you know it might lead to work. But of course, the ACs are like they just want some fucking donut the right size and like, you know, get out of my face after that. Um, they just want a room with all the kit and a bit of space to focus. So you can't really, I mean, I've always been useless at trying to, you know, put myself forward and like, you know, uh, take opportunities where I have to go and talk to people. Uh, I'm pretty useless at that, always have been. So uh, I didn't really take advantage of any of those kinds of opportunities when I was in the kit house, really. Uh, all I did was focus on doing a good job with the cameras and learn as much as I could about the cameras. So I did that. It also just led to other opportunities though where I could uh, shoot little projects outside of, outside of work. So the, the particular 
rental house I was in at the time was probably an anomaly in that so long as you weren't completely incompetent, they would let you take out kit at weekends, pretty much whatever was available on the shelf. Uh, and, you know, I remember at one time shooting a short film with you, Luca, where you were uh, operating and we were shooting in uh, a certain abandoned car park that you'll know very well. Mm, and we, kind of. we, <laughs> we had like, you know, a hundred grand, a hundred grand's worth of gear that we, you know, that we absolutely shouldn't have had. I think we shot it on like master primes, you know, you think about it, like it was nuts. Uh, and it was just like a, a passion project. Uh, so that was cool. You know, you, you get to, you get to learn a lot that way, I guess. But I mean, I think the, what I learned in London, you know, as in terms of like valuable experience for my career, let's say, was mostly outside of the kit room. It would have been working on various creative projects with like-minded people and the slog of freelance in the sense of economics, you know, like trying to survive as a freelancer. Uh, I did that before and after the kit room experience. The kit room experience was a nice way to, to learn, but also it was just a simple practical thing of a paycheck, you know, because um, I was struggling. Uh, London is not an easy place. You think there's so much work going on, but there's also just so many people trying to get the same work. So uh, I didn't really have any connections other than friends like yourself, you know, that I built up over time there, but I didn't really have any connections when I went to London. I just kind of went for it and uh, spent so much time on these stupid websites where you're like, you know, applying for a bazillion jobs a day and like you might get one email back a month, you know. You know, you know what it's like. Uh, so, yeah, it was a struggle. But I guess that, you know, when you come out the other side of a few years of struggling as a freelancer and living on nothing, uh, and you're still doing it, uh, that means that you love what you do, I think, you know? <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only way it makes sense. <laughs> it must be that. Yeah. <laughs> And then when you came back to Dublin, like, uh, what, what, what did you work at the beginning before Tiny Ark? Uh, so I suppose when I came back to Dublin, I don't know how long it was since between when I moved back to Dublin and when I started in Tiny Ark, but I would have done a few freelance jobs with Tiny Ark and freelance jobs and different jobs. I think when we went to Norway, was that when I was back in Ireland? I think I was back in Ireland by then. Yeah, you were really nice. Yeah, yeah. So we had that cool production in Norway, which was like a short film where I was focus pulling for you. Uh, but anyway, uh, there was projects like that. There was a real random bunch of projects, to be honest. There was not much commercial stuff. And any commercial stuff I was working on was as an AC. Uh, and then there was a, a few documentaries. I was still working with an NGO in Drogheda called Development Perspectives where I shot, uh, that was one of the times I went to Tanzania, I was with them. Um, I shot a lot of documentaries in Ireland uh, with them, maybe three, I think. Most of them during that time, four actually, I think. Uh, and then, so I was acing on films, I was shooting documentaries, and I was shooting a lot of corporate stuff. Um, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but sometime soon after I came back from London, a DP I know from London got a freelance job in 
Dublin, keeping track, <laughs> with, uh, with a corporate client that he kind of just wasn't interested in doing. Basically, this guy had was just shot his first uh, car commercial and, you know, these corporate jobs, he wanted to get rid of them. So he handed it off to me and I was more than happy. So I uh, did this corporate job and I ended up kind of doing a lot of work for that company uh, internationally where I flew to lots and lots of different European cities because this company was like a global uh, consultancy firm basically and they were big into their leadership interviews. They did interviews with CEOs of big companies all over Europe. So that was pretty cool. Uh, I got to do a lot of traveling with them and I got pretty good at a small crew corporate interview style uh, video, uh, basically with A7s and a small lighting setup that I could pack into a few pellies. And I would go with a sound recordist and maybe a makeup artist, and there wouldn't be any director. The client would basically take the lead on what they were all talking about. I would just focus on making it look pretty. Uh, and then I would take care of post as well. And I did a lot of those jobs for, for that time up until uh, I joined Tiny Arc. And actually, I was eight months, randomly, I was eight months in a post-production house uh, before I came into Tiny Arc because a friend of mine who I had known from games development back in the day offered me some work as an editor. Uh, and of course, I was going to take it. The, the, the rate was good. Uh, and yeah it ended up going from like two weeks into like a month into six months um and uh i was just going out of my mind editing green screen e-learning content uh when when tiny arc gave me a call and asked me if uh, i was available to focus pull for a job and actually it was i had worked with them a few times at that stage and I was actually getting married soon after and going on my honeymoon. And it was my, no, it wasn't my honeymoon, it was my stag actually. My stag was the same weekend as this job. And I was like, there's no way I'm missing my stag. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I told them that, I was like, look, I'm sorry, but my stag is that weekend, um, I'm not gonna miss it. Uh, but look, I'd love to meet for a coffee, which is like the first time I've ever done this in my entire professional career. I put myself forward for once I said, look, if, if you might be interested, I'm trying to do more shooting. I'm going crazy doing this post-production job. Uh, I need to get out of here, but I need something that is going to kind of match financially to this. Uh, do you have any work going? And if you do, maybe we could do a coffee or something. So they gave me a coffee uh, and it, pure coincidence, the guy in their company who was doing most of the shooting was moving on and they had, a, they had an opening and they, they took me on provisionally to start with and then full-time. So that's kind of how that happened. Uh, so yeah, that work I was doing in Ireland before Tiny Arc, that's how it led me to Tiny Arc. And um, I'm interested about uh, the, the, the work and the economy it was uh, in Ireland, you know, with the recession, it was from 2008 when I was still there and I left in 2013. I think at the moment when I left, I probably had no work for quite a while when I left and I moved to London. And actually, I think the, the economy that's kind of restart a bit. Um, my friends start getting busy in Ireland. 
So I wonder, like, um, since you're back, like, working in Ireland, like, do you think, has it been busy, busier than you've seen in London or for you or? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I was in, I was just leaving college at the, well, I was in college and then leaving college during the first kind of recession, uh, well, the first recession, but you know what I mean, the one 2008, 2012 kind of period. Uh, so it was a good time to be in college because everything was cheaper and I didn't feel the pain of like all the jobs being lost, etc. you know. Uh, but then when it came out, yeah, I guess it was probably slow enough market compared to now uh, in Ireland. But then when I started getting a lot of, not a lot, but when I started getting a decent amount of freelance work, particularly corporate work, uh, and then yeah, basically due to life, life circumstances, which was that my now wife was going to go to London to study for teaching. Uh, even though I was starting to get busier in Ireland, I was like, okay, well, I'll go to London and try London. So when I went to London for the first year or so I was in London, I was probably doing more work in Ireland and flying back and forth. And then ironically, when I was two and a half years in London and then came home, most of my work was in London for like six months after I moved home and I was flying back and forth and it was just really silly waste of money, you know, uh, coming back and forth for one day jobs because I didn't want to turn them down because I was, didn't have much other work going on, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, uh, now, ever since, kind of ever since I came back from London, I think, things have been busier and busier. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to tell how much is the, the market as a whole or it just happens to be my experience, I don't know. But for me anyway, uh, the amount of work going on in Dublin, uh, in the video world, in the film world, has, has been growing and growing. Now I have to stress that like, I'm not working in the film world, the proper film world, let's say, where, you know, the bigger productions. So. If you were a second or a first, maybe this would be a different thing. But for me, who was doing a lot of corporate work, kind of smaller scale commercial work and documentary stuff, there was just an awful lot going on. Um, and then ever since I've joined Tiny Arc, it's been growing and growing. The company has grown and grown. And I think that's partly because obviously they're good at what they do. Uh, we're good at what we do. But it's also because the amount of work going on has been growing and growing, I think. Uh, I guess the demand for video content, for branded content online, this whole kind of thing. I remember a few years ago, it was like, you know, I work in commercials, so well, have you shot a TV commercial? You know, because there was a difference between a TV commercial and an online commercial. A TV commercial meant you were serious, you know? That's still true to an extent, but now like there's such a big gray area between like a product promo and a full-blown commercial there's every step in between in terms of budget and in terms of production value um, so i think that all those steps didn't exist a few years ago maybe there was like the small scale online commercial stuff and there was the big scale tv commercials that were occasionally put online as well and now it's like there's a bigger focus for online and agencies want to do more work uh, with less budget on each job um, and kind of, but they don't want the production value to drop, you know, so. So we got Blaine on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, that's the kind of work that we've been doing where we kind of have been trying to aim for, you know, 
TV, what would traditionally would have been called like the TV commercial scale, like a hundred grand plus, but with smaller budgets of like more like tens of thousands, uh, and using technology that obviously has been changing a lot in the last few years to kind of allow for like for example full frame lens full frame sensors and cheaper cameras and you know cheaper cinema lenses and just cheaper camera stabilization all these things that allow you to kind of shoot to a higher production value for less budget we've been kind of filling that gap where people want to not pay so much but uh, you know aim for high-end production value and thankfully we've kind of shifted on from there to be doing to be more doing more of the actual high-end uh, advertising stuff um, but still I think one of the reasons why I've been so busy over the last few years is because we've been doing such a mix of types of projects you know and but they've all been kind of branded online content that's the kind of catch-all phrase even the documentary style stuff i've been shooting has been with a branded client a brand client you know uh for example shot something with seat where they launch a new car and they wanted like this kind of almost tv show feeling where they had these two people who were like car um experts let's say uh driving this car around ireland and it was shot like a TV doc uh, and put out as branded content for Sayat, you know? So this, this is kind of the, there's lots of these kind of hybrid productions going on at the moment. Uh, to the extent that at the moment where, uh, you know, as I told you earlier, I've just kind of been updating my portfolio and my reel for the first time in years, literally. And there's so many projects that I don't know what category they, def they fall into, you know, like corporate films that are, kind of commercial scale and production quality and then there's documentaries that are not like that are brand content so can you call them documentaries even though they've been shot the same way a documentary would be shot um yeah so there's lots of kind of weird in between kinds of productions going on at least for me um but it's fun it makes it different every every job is very different <laughs> that's good this is Exciting. And so uh, how do you feel about your experience with Tony Ark? How long have you been with them? It's a little, little over three years now. Um, but it's a kind of full time, like kind of you, your contract or is... Uh, so I'm, I'm on a salary with them. So okay. uh, and have been since, I don't know, like the first couple of months. Um, but Tiny Ark is a bit unusual like that. They have most production companies, at least to my knowledge, uh, at least in Ireland, consist mostly of producers and directors. Tiny Arc is kind of a all-in-one team. They, of course, we use freelancers like all the time, uh, like camera assistants and stuff. But most of the crew on each production are all kind of full-time Tiny Arcers. Uh, there is not as much freelance crew involved as there would be in other productions, and that has its pros and its cons, you know. Uh, but what it means is, for me, that uh the directors are always tiny art directors so there's 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 maybe i think four or five roughly directors that i've been working with all the time for the last three years uh and you know as a result we've obviously got to know each other very well and 
I, we kind of hit every production with a few steps already taken. Uh, if you know what I mean, we don't need to figure out how each other thinks or anything. We know we know how to work together, and that's an advantage. But also the disadvantage is that you know I haven't probably been doing as much work outside of Tiny Arc as I would like to be doing. You know, and that's going to be a focus for me for the next while. Uh, I'm going to continue working in Tiny Arc because I love it, and I don't want that to change. But I need to expand the amount of directors I'm working with for my own kind of creative outlet, but also from a professional point of view. Uh, and like, I think now, uh, finally, after three years of kind of shooting a lot of uh, corporate stuff, not corporate stuff, sorry, commercial stuff, um, I have a decent commercial reel to put out there, a decent commercial portfolio uh, that I could be taken seriously with other commercial directors, you know? So yeah, to answer the question about how much of my work is in Tiny Arc and how much is outside. I, for the last few years, it's been something like 70, 80% in Tiny Arc and then uh, the rest is freelance. Um, but the freelance work I've been doing has been mostly corporate stuff, uh, the odd documentary, very little commercial stuff, you know? So yeah, we'll see how that goes for the next while, but um, that's the current state of play. I'm I'm a bit confused. Like, is is an agency by his production company? No. So it, well, I mean, okay. So Tiny Art calls itself a creative video agency. Okay. We are a production company, though. We have everything in house, like all the gear we use. Mostly, I mean, unless we're renting a particular camera for a particular job or particular lenses for a particular job, or unless it's a bigger scale production where we bring in a gaffer for lighting. Most of the projects we do, we facilitate in-house with our own gear and our own crew. Uh, so we are a production company, first and foremost. But the reason that Tiny Arc uh, puts itself out there as an agency is that it's different from a, a, a production company in that we also facilitate direct-to-client uh, jobs. So we don't always work with agencies. We, work with, we do work with agencies as a production company as well, but we also do direct-to-client work where we essentially are the agency, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Again, hybrids, everything is a hybrid of a hybrid <laughs> in our world. Well, that's an interesting approach. Uh, um, and, um, you want to tell us about some of your latest projects before the pandemic, like uh, anything you've been particularly proud of, even with Tani Arc or outside? Before the pandemic or after? Yeah, the pandemic? before the pandemic. Okay, I think I think I think I think I, I think I know what the next question is. I think I know what the next question is. Um, yeah, uh, there's been a few. Uh, so there's one job, the kind of I suppose the biggest commercial I did in the sense that the one that would have been seen by the most people, let's say, uh, was a was a national campaign for air, which for your UK audience is 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 basically the biggest broadband provider in Ireland and the biggest telecoms company in Ireland. Um, so they had a, a national campaign, which was a whole like deal with billboards and ads and radio ads, etc., etc. But we shot the video uh, commercial, um, which would have been on TV, online, everywhere, basically, for a few months. Um, so that was the biggest one. And it was a real kind of technical uh, Head fuck. Uh, I know I probably shouldn't be cursing so much, so apologies. 
But anyway, it's, I don't know what other word to use. Uh, it was it was it involved um, speed ramps between different scenes that were all kind of took place in the same built set. So we built a set which was a living room, and the whole thing revolved literally revolved around a sofa. So the camera would do a one eighty degree move around this sofa. So one scene, there were several scenes. One scene was a kid, uh, like a teenage guy playing games. Another scene was uh, a girl playing like Guitar Hero. Another one was um, the parents watching a horror movie. And then there was like a family scene with all of them sitting around. And it was like all the idea of all the different ways you can use internet in your home. And the way it was done was with a, a 180 degree track dolly. Uh, around this built set and we had to because the camera moved the whole way around 180 degrees we had to light everything from above uh, and we had these crazy speed ramps where it would go from hyper speed to like 120 frames or maybe 100 frames uh, for a, a second before the camera would whip out again really fast so because we were shooting yeah, on top of that, we were, uh, there was a lot of VFX elements. Windmill Lane were doing posts. It was actually Windmill Lane was our client, essentially. They, uh, they hired us to shoot it. But so they were um, doing posts. So there was a lot of considerations around the various VFX elements that were going on. So, for example, a rocket would enter the scene and fly past the, the boy as he was playing the game. And we had to cue lights to come on as the rocket was passing his head, which of course the rocket wasn't there when we were filming. Uh, so we had to cue, imagine where the rocket was gonna be working on the storyboards and cue lights to, that were motivated by the rocket. But we had to do that in uh, split seconds where it was the right time for the camera to be straight ahead during this 180 degree move in 100 frames. Uh, so it was really, uh, yeah, How much a, time? a lot of considerations. How much time you had to shoot the whole thing? Oh, we shot the whole thing in a day. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's good, is it? We we had a, <laughs> we had a, yeah. we had a pre-light day, uh, a full pre-light day that we were fully set up on the shoot day. But yeah, we knocked the whole thing out in a day, um, and. There's lots of setting as well. You know, see, like I, see two, two, I think I think we had only two weeks, maybe three weeks. I think it was only two weeks pre-production. Hmm. So this is, this, is, this is kind of normal in my world anyway, uh, where jobs come in and we're shooting in like two weeks, maybe three weeks. Three weeks is a luxury. Uh, and often there's, other, there's always other productions happening in the meantime. So it's not like you have two weeks full-time on pre-production, you know? So even on jobs that are really technically difficult, take a lot of figuring out, uh, we just never have enough time. <laughs> But we make them work, we make them happen. Um, so yeah, Air was one such project that was a highlight. Another one would have been a shoot we did for Jemison, uh, Cold Brew, which is a more recent one. I think it was last summer, I think. Um, or maybe it was at the end of the year. Whatever, anyway, recent uh, one for, for Jemison, which is a new drink called Cold Brew, is like coffee and whiskey, coffee meets whiskey. And there was all these kind of product shots of like coffee beans and whiskey swirling around in the glass and all that kind of thing. Uh, but there was also like, you know, set scenes with actors and it's, I suppose it's, it's a highlight just in the sense that 
it, number one, I think it turned out pretty well, well. It was one of the projects that I was most proud of how it turned out. But then also, the what ended up happening was that Jemison, even though we shot it as an online commercial, and here's another kind of, uh, you know, story of hi- of hybrid productions. We shot it as an online product uh, commercial, but they ended up using it as a TV commercial in the U.S., like a national U.S. TV commercial campaign. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to tell you what the budget was, but it definitely wasn't at the same level that you would expect a national TV commercial in, in, in the U.S. So, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, a highlight. Um, so it, probably, it probably looked like that anyway. Of course it did. Of course it did, Luca. <laughs> of course it did. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of projects like that. The, but, like, we did a lot of kind of smaller kind of... Uh, creative projects. I mean, there was one for a fashion brand uh, called Ireland's Eye Knitwear, which it was a really simple, really, really simple video. Like it was, they wanted some shots of the factory where they make the stuff and they wanted some shots with models on the beach uh, wearing the clothes. And that is literally all the video is, is shots of, you know, um, it could have been, it could have kind of turned out to be pretty average, but the director did an exceptionally good job on it. And uh, we had a really nice day for once in Ireland when we were shooting the beach stuff. It was really sunny and there was a, just the right amount of wind that would look great in 50 frames. And, you know, we had some very good looking models and, uh, yeah, it turned out pretty well. And that sometimes it's the simple projects that, you know, kind of get nudged up the list in the, in the portfolio because they just turn out really well, you know? Now let's move on a bit more, kind of like uh, the creativity part. Um, what, what can you explain us like uh, your creative process with um, as a director of photography, working in commercials? Um, how do you work with directors and producers? So there's no like, I think as every DP knows, there is no one way to work with directors. Um, I think you would be a bad DP if you didn't. Uh, conform to whatever way the director wants to work, you know. Uh, so, as I said, I work with mostly four or five different directors for the last few years, and they all work in different ways. Some of them are completely driven by intuition and uh, kind of emotional sides of the brain, if you like, and some are more motivated by visuals and uh, pulling off particular technical uh, approaches um, so yeah there, there's, there's a totally different approach for each director I think I don't think there is a one that works I mean there's some things that I have to do for myself which uh, I always do when I have time of course uh, which is you know if there's no storyboard um, to at least have a pretty distinct shot list at least for uh, commercial content. I mean, it sounds obvious, but there's a lot of times where there is no storyboard and things are a bit grey and uh, not clear from what the agency and the client want. So there's an awful lot of figuring out. Most of the time in pre-production, to be honest, is spent figuring out with the director what the agency slash client actually want from the video and to try to achieve that and hopefully in some cases at least surpass it. Uh, 
so yeah it's just it's meetings it's 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 discuss it's discussions it's mostly the work i do is mostly with the director there's not typically many other heads of department to talk to you know there's not really it's 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 unfortunately rare that i get to work with a production designer uh, it's unfortunately rare that i would have conversations with makeup or costume etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's not like film world in that way um it's all down to me the director and then bringing in whatever elements we need to get the job done within the limited budget that we have to work with uh so yeah obviously there's always figuring out how to do things technically and then there's a certain amount of research needs to be done and then there's always a scramble for the gear that doesn't exist in the Irish market to rent um, and then we're trying to figure out how to do it a different way so a lot of the creative for me is is actually creative solutions for the technical if that makes sense <laughs> um, a lot of the creative is is already very defined by the time I get it and any by the time the project comes to me and for me it's it's about making the job happen uh, technically uh, and resourcing with crew resourcing with kit and working to a budget um, yeah so I, I guess you know that's why I try where possible to do as much of the more creative projects uh, I can like music videos like uh, short films and like documentaries where there's a bit more control of the creative and I have been trying in the commercial side of things to get involved in the conversation as early as possible so now that happens more than it did three years ago I have to say the producers in Tiny Art do a very good job of bringing me into the conversation as early as possible mostly because they've got stung with bills that they didn't know that they were going to have when 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 the production comes around because they didn't involve me in the conversation earlier sometimes but anyway uh, yeah we we We've got very good at working together in getting me involved in the creative early, often before the director is even assigned. And then when the director comes on board, from there on, it's always me and the director working together to figure out how to get this thing made, you know? Uh, yeah, creative process, other than that, you know, the usual things, the mood boards, reference images. Uh, I'll often be part of making a creative deck that would go to the client as part of pitch uh, or that would more or, or a treatment that would happen when we've already won the job but we need to define more clearly what it is we're going to achieve so that the client and the agency are on the same page before we go into production so the creation of those decks is something that i would do be involved with uh, Usually the director would take the lead, but I would be involved in it uh, from from the point of view of providing visuals and uh, explaining how we would create the visuals. And that making those decks is kind of the 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 closest thing that I would define as a creative process because everything has to be figured out during that time. Uh, once then that kind of gets the sign off, it becomes a lot less creative and a lot more technical, you know. That's cool. Um, another question I had is, um, do you have any artist that influenced you at the beginning of your journey? Where you inspired from? 
you just found in the way to be honest not really uh i mean of course like you know you've got deacons and you've got chris doyle and you've got lots of amazing cinematographers uh but i mean to be honest like i would be lying if i said that they were like major influences on my approach and my work i'd be saying it just to sound like it's the right answer you know uh for me the truth is that like i kind of have always felt out uh projects um and sort of shot i shoot a lot on intuition on how i feel like works best for the story um i mean i know that sounds obvious but like what i mean is i'll often go into a job very happily not having done much pre-production if i know some basic rules of what it is we're trying to achieve and what the director wants to achieve and I, once i know that me and the director are on the same page then i'll quite happily go in and figure out how to shoot it on the day or or on the day before um and yeah in terms of i mean in terms of framing and lighting and uh even the only thing i really worry about in pre-production in terms of how to approach is like using the right camera uh and having the right lenses and making sure that i have the options for lighting in the van uh before i get there you know um so those kind of things i have to decide but otherwise i'm quite easy and i suppose that what the reason that's relevant for your question is that i can't say that there are particular dps or artists of any kind really that i have a that have had a particular influence on how i shoot and the the style if you want to call it that um because i don't know if i do you know like i've kind of i've looked at like rembrandt and caravaggio and all the rest like the same as every dp has but it's not like i can say that they had some sort of major influence you know maybe you don't know yeah exactly maybe 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 they have maybe all the films when you were a kid you went to that museum yeah maybe but to be honest i didn't go to too many museums man i spent <laughs> i spent most of my time playing games which did have a huge influence on how I shoot I have to say. Well. And uh I'll always love to work for a video game as the OP. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'd be my wouldn't. dream. Uh no, like I have a massive passion for games. They always have uh not less so lately I guess because you know, I've been too busy. When games are unlike film, they take a lot more time to enjoy. Uh but yeah, uh like <laughs> I suppose if there's one influence for me uh growing up it definitely has to be games. I played games like way more than I watched films when I was growing up. Um and for me the biggest kind of if you look at my work in general, um I think it's safe to say that the one kind of trend that continues is a moving camera. Like I move the camera all the time. I can't stop moving the camera. The only time I stop moving the camera is when the story or the subject the people I'm filming demand the full attention and there's no point in moving the camera of course I'm not stupid I don't move it when there's no need to but I think a lot about how to move the camera and how what type of camera movement is going to work and you know when to move the camera and all those kind of things that 
of course, and I'm not saying that's completely to do with games, but games do have, when you play games, you do control the camera uh, all the time. So in a way, in a kind of weird way, I was doing that in games for years and years and years before I ever actually picked up a camera to operate, you know? And I think that that definitely had an influence. I think that if I didn't, if I hadn't have done all those years of games, I wouldn't be as confident and as kind of, uh, I wouldn't be as daring to move the camera as much as I do. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense because I love games too, so. Yeah, yeah, understand you get me. That. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, last couple of questions. Um, that's uh, particularly interesting. Um, when lockdown started across Europe, many, you know, like me, and the commercial and film industry saw their work completely postponed or cancelled, you know, sadly, from a day to the other one. And you were one of the few people that I know to upload pictures, probably the only one in fairness, actually, that upload pictures from a shoot on social media during those lockdown days. Can you explain what, what you were shooting? Um, how did it work out safety-wise? Because there were still no protocols at the time. Yeah, so uh, before the pandemic came along, we did, uh, I'd say we as in Tiny Arc, uh, done a lot of work with an organization called Other Voices, which in Ireland is a well-known uh, organization around promoting Irish uh, musicians. Uh, so there's a TV show, there's, uh, you know, they've been around for years as an organization. And the work that we were doing until the pandemic was mostly social content uh, for them uh, that we would have been shooting in conjunction with their ENG crew that was doing t the TV show. We would take the artists and shoot like a social piece, like a sort of a small form documentary uh, that would then be intercut with some other music and then it would be put online as a sort of promotion both for the band and for the and for other voices. So we, we had a kind of very positive ongoing uh, relationship with uh, other voices for maybe I, I think roughly a year before the pandemic came along. And then when the pandemic came along, of course, no one was hit harder than the arts and everything was hit musicians artists like film everything and other voices wanted to do something to you know give artists a voice and to give artists some work and to lift the spirits of the nation you know i mean it's a lofty phrase but that is what they were aiming to do so they came to us with this project called courage uh, which was they envisioned it as an online only uh, live stream series and the reason that's important is because they otherwise would have went with their usual tv crew setup i mean like i said when we shot with them before we were doing the social content which was more like small scale small crew stuff they would then in tandem be shooting we did shoot some eng for them as well but uh, mostly they were using TV cameramen to shoot the TV content and then they would have an OB, uh, what's it called, an OB truck, broadcast truck uh, from different areas to do live events. So they never did online live streams before. 
The funny thing is, we basically had never done online live streams before either. <laughs> but, but since, uh, you know, we were like all into technology and they knew us and we were like uh, the kids on the block, if you like, they figured, oh, these guys will figure this out. So they came to us to do this live stream series. And to say that, you know, the experience was being thrown into the deep end was, was a major understatement. I mean, I had never shot anything for live before in my life. And oh. I, here I was going to DP a series of music performances that we all knew, you know, at least tens of thousands of people were going to watch. Now, it definitely got a lot bigger than we ever thought it was going to get. But anyway, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I was, you know, really nervous about it. Um, but we, we, we figured it out. Uh, there's a guy called Jarrah Finnegan, who, who, who's worth a mention. He's a live stream operator and all around filmmaker without whom it wouldn't have been possible. But he came in to help uh, from a live stream point of view uh, and I looked after the cameras and the lighting. So anyway, this all happened very quickly because of course lockdown came in very quickly and other voices wanted to do something as soon as possible. So in the space of about two or three weeks, we were in production and this was a government funded initiative. So we had the support of the government, which at the time was a really big achievement because the entire country was in complete lockdown and no one else was working. As far as we knew, the only people shooting anything were like TV crews. Um, and yeah, we, we were given the go ahead to do this because it was seen as important to support the arts and support culture and to give people something to watch um, during this tough time. Uh, so there was a real kind of feeling of a mission about it, you know, like we felt like it was something important. Um, I think it was something important. Uh, something to tell your nephews. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the first season in particular was extremely difficult because we were, in terms of protocols, we were making our own protocols. Uh, there was no protocols. so. It should probably make more, even more sense. We, we, yeah, well, we, we, had, we had rules that were, looking back now, were kind of crazy, but they were also good in the sense that they did make sure there was no COVID uh, crossover. So, for example, there was only five of us in the entire crew. So there was me, I did all the lighting, and I set any static cameras, and I operated one camera. Then I had another guy called Leon who was operating another camera. So we had two ops total. Then we had the live stream up. Then we had the director slash producer, Liam Harkin, who directed all the pieces because we had like a creative team that worked remotely, that there was a lot of creative input from the wider team. But on the ground, Liam facilitated the role of the director slash floor manager slash producer. Um, and then there was a sound guy who was a genius sound engineer by the name of Leon. Um, O'Neill. Uh, so we, the five of us essentially um, 
set up in Whelan's, which is a famous music venue in Dublin, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with. And we aimed to do, you know, three or four gigs. At the time, it was very, like, like now, it was very, you were very unsure about how much, you know, when we were going to be shut down. You know, we thought, like, we'll do one gig and then we won't be allowed to continue. You know, we thought that we were afraid that word would get out that we were shooting and that, you know, it would be bad press, you know. Everybody jealous. Well, not that everyone's jealous, <laughs> but, you know, that people would, certain, yeah, pe certain people would look for flaws in how we were doing things. So we yeah. were really regimental about it. So to the point where once we geared up at the start of the few weeks, uh, we didn't touch each other's equipment at all. So yeah. no one touched any lights or any of the cameras that I was using except me. The only exception was like SDI cables that needed to be used to link back to the live stream operator. And the odd time if we changed a lens that, you know, we had to move a lens from one camera to the other, we would sanitize it. And the media cards, we would sanitize them. Absolutely everything that was handed from person to person was sanitized there and then with wipes. Of course, we wore all the masks and all the rest, but the main thing we did was not touch each other's equipment at all. Uh, and we obviously maintained social distance, etc. Season two, uh, so we had did, I think it was eight gigs in season one, and then it was... All at the Whelan's? No, so at, I think we did four gigs in Whelan's, and at this stage, it was already getting pretty big in terms of the amount of people watching it online. And it was particularly successful with Irish Diaspora, who are abroad watching. Mm. And it was kind of a little piece of home. And it was like, it was touching because the artists would play songs and then they would pause and they'd look at a TV. And the TV was like populated with comments that people were making on the live stream. And it was a kind of really interesting way to give the artists an audience without there being any audience. Um, I mean, it sounds kind of normal now, but that was kind of pretty innovative at the time. And so, like, you had these artists who were kind of had very touching messages at a time when people were really crying out for someone to listen to. And so, yeah, and the artists were amazing. You know, we worked with some really, really amazing artists. And the fifth gig was Lisa Hannigan, and Lisa Hannigan is, you know, really big. And somehow we got into the the national library the national gallery to shoot that gig and we ended up shooting three gigs in the national gallery and we shot with glenn hansard in the national library because what was happening was that the whole country was shut down so all these buildings were empty uh, so it was an opportunity for the government to showcase some buildings that were probably not seen by many members of the public um, to showcase them and use them for something because they were going to be empty anyway uh, and to give these artists a really kind of epic background to perform in. So Lisa Hannigan in, in, in the National Gallery and Denise Chyla, who's one of the biggest up-and-coming artists in, in Ireland at the moment, in the National Gallery as well, and Glenn Hansard in the National Library were all major highlights of season one. And that kind of set the scene once we already knew before we finished season one that season two was going to happen because there was a big kind of... In season two, you were still in lockdown? 
Yeah, well, I'm not sure when, lo- maybe it had moved from the most severe lockdown to the next stage or whatever. But Still uh, drinking. People, yeah. <laughs> people were, um, people were, were, were back to work a little bit, uh, but there wasn't many other people shooting still. You know, there wasn't many commercial projects going on. Um, so for us, it was like a massive win that we had diverted very quickly into live streams from a from a business point of view, you know. Um, but we were also conscious that we didn't want to just do live streams like the basic kind of live stream where you have a couple of static cameras and artist sits in a room and performs, which is, you know, frankly, what we could have done. We kind of tried to make something creative and different with it and we tried to inject a little bit of you know we moved the camera a lot you know we 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 had a gimbal in full flow all the time uh we lit every scene every artist differently depending on the kind of mood of the genre of the music um we tried to have some influence on some small elements of blocking like for example we got Glenn Hanser to walk in playing the guitar into the National Library so that he could walk around the whole space so that we could show the space more and um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, then we went into season two and we shot literally all over the country uh, because, you know, <laughs> all the stakeholders and government wanted to have their local, their local, uh, you know, famous place on. So we, sh- we, we were in, you know, Donegal, Derry, Kerry, uh, Cork, Dublin, the far end of Connemara and Kylemore Abbey. Um, you know, we shot in like loads of cool places, including like one really, really fun shoot in Kilmainham Jail with uh, Fontaine's DC, which again are another serious kind of rising talent or, or well, I mean, they're pretty famous already, but they're, they're getting really big um, rock band. And uh, yeah, for that gig, we brought in not one, but two gimbals. We set up, I mean, it was absolutely madness. We, sh- we set up with the band in a circle, all facing each other, all five of them in a circle. We gave ourselves one blind corner in the room. So one, one corner that we couldn't fill them into, which had the rest of the crew and set up in it. And for the rest of the whole space, like, 270 degrees around the band we had free free reign to move the cameras and we lit everything from above and we lit, lit through the cell doors and everything and we had a really distinct plan about how we were going to shoot this in the sense that you know we would move at this moment in a song we had a plan to do this camera move etc etc but it came, became very clear very quickly in the rehearsal that that just was not going to happen. I mean, for a start, we couldn't hear, we could hear nothing above the drums, even though we were wearing cans and had our radios up full, full blast. We could barely hear when we were live, when we weren't live. And um, there was just no space because everything was so frenetic and... Uh, the cuts were so fast and the camera moves were so fast. There was no space for the director to say anything, really. So in the end, me and the other gimbal operator had to learn how to dance together in a way that we were never going to be in each other's shots. And then the live stream op just cut between things as best he could with the music. 
and it felt like it was never going to work. It felt like this is a disaster. It's going to oh, look. We're going to have camera ops in the shots everywhere. And in the end, it, it doesn't it, matter. It, it all, black. In the end, I mean, there was one or two times where the camera ops got in the shots, but it didn't matter. And it's normal. It was honestly really, really cool. It was a. It was like the perfect blend of chaos and planning and. Uh, it actually went off really, really well, you know. Uh, so that was another highlight. Um, but there was loads of highlights. We shot with some amazing bands in the space of, I think, three months or so. I mean, at the end of it, I was absolutely exhausted because we were shooting two gigs a week and they were all over the country and there was a lot of planning and prepping. And the shoot days were really long because we had to do a trial live stream in full before the real live stream and all the setup had to be done before the trial live stream so the day usually started at like 9 or 10 a.m and didn't finish until maybe 11 p.m uh, so it was it was tough but it was definitely a, a really really positive experience and of course it has led to an awful lot of other live stream work because we suddenly became the company that's doing creative live streams in the pandemic when we never, more or less, we had never done a, pan- a live stream before the pandemic. <laughs> so that's a beauty of Ireland. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was interesting. It's still interesting because we're still doing live streams. We've done re- one recently for the Dublin Theatre Festival where they wanted to do a live performance that starts in a room on the first floor of a building along the quays in Dublin that goes down through the building onto the street and down the street onto O'Connell Bridge, like 350 meters. And we were dropping pre-recorded content that we recorded the same week into the same live stream. And like, you know, most people would have looked at the job and said, that's mad, we're not gonna do that. Uh, but we did it and like, it was, you know, it, it, it was more or less completely successful, I think. Um, uh, but it was it was interesting because it's a whole it's a whole kind of job. It's a whole kind of uh, you know you know you shoot I shoot corporates I shoot commercials I shoot documentaries and now I shoot live streams which was never in the plan. But uh, it's it it's actually something that has been really creatively interesting and really technically challenging, and something that I mean there's a real buzz off shooting live that you don't get from 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 not shooting live you know, so. Yeah, long may it continue. Sounds fun. Um, Work-wise, what, what do you think of the situation um, with COVID in Ireland? Like, do you, do you think like artists and venues are being helped enough in this period? Uh, any worries, new challenges, maybe something even positive? Probably there is. Like my, my opinion of the government's response in Ireland in general is pretty positive. I think, you know, that they've done a pretty good job in the circumstances, um, especially when you look at other countries around the world and you kind of realize just how lucky we are to have a relatively representative, normal democratic society, you know. Um, but yeah, with artists, I mean, there's no easy solution, you know, like it's live gigs just can't happen, you know? So uh, hopefully with live streams, we found a way to, you know, give artists a voice. Um, and I think that, 
you know, it's not just us doing it, there's lots of people doing that. And I think that that's something that is, is, is helping a lot for artists because at least that, that's a gig, you know? And for a lot of the artists that we worked with over the last few months, the time we shot with them was the first gig that they had done in months, you know? Some of them are recording and stuff, but most of them are not gigging in any way, whether live streams or not. So I think that there's no, there's no easy solution because, you know, for most artists, gigs are where they make more, most of their money and it's not easy to make money now when you don't have gigs. So I just don't know what the solution is other than, other than the way it's going at the moment. I mean, I'm not too familiar with what programs the government has brought in to support artists, you know. We don't count, we're a commercial outfit, so we're not really concerned uh, for us, you know, but uh, for artists, for most of the artists that we've been dealing with, that's all I can speak to. Um, they seem like to appreciate the situation and understand the importance of why we're not doing gigs. I mean, I don't think any of them are calling to do gigs, you know. Um, so I think this is the reality for the next six months, at least. And everybody is pretty accepting of it, in my experience, you know. And now, like, uh, just to wrap this very nice conversation. Um, is there any work that you are prepping at the moment? Um, Something that you look forward to? to I, I have to be careful what I say, Luca. Something <laughs> <laughs> um, is not confidential. There is, there is some very exciting live stream work in the pipeline. Um, one three actually separate jobs that are all music related. Um, one I think is no secret is that the Other Voices Festival that usually happens every year, the first week of December in Dingle, we'll be covering that with live stream content because of course there's no audiences. Um, and we'll be doing a lot of kind of cool pre-recorded content with artists that will be uh, dropped in as part of the live streams. Uh, so that's kind of two blocks of filming that I'm looking forward to. Um, then there's another big, very big festival in Ireland that I can't name that is wanting us to do a tribute to COVID victims, which is something that is kind of a big scale music live stream with multiple acts happening in one night but something that we have to be very obviously be very considerate about and probably have a very concise and considered narrative to 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 drive it so it won't be a straightforward music live stream there'll be some sort of narrative elements throughout that will hopefully uh, pay tribute to the lives lost so that's something that i'm really looking forward to from a creative point of view um, and then there's another big gig coming up, music gig, um, and then there's, there's, there's a few kind of more commercial live stream jobs in the sense that we did one with Audi recently where they, it was essentially like a showcase about a new car. So we shot some nice shots of a car, we shot it in the studio. And then we did a live stream where a presenter discussed the car with the expert 
uh, and then we kind of dropped in the shots that we had pre-shot in advance that were more kind of sexy commercial shots. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that kind of work uh, because all kinds of different brands and businesses are wanting to get messages out messages that would have been part of big events and conventions and stuff that now aren't happening um, so there's kind of an interesting commercial slash live stream strand going on as well as a music slash live stream strand um, I think most of the work for us over the next six months at least is going to be that we're still doing a few commercials here and there like traditional commercials um, but they're they're not the majority of the work because yeah, those kind of productions, you don't know whether they can go ahead or not, you know. With the live streams, at least the government-funded ones, there's there's more certainty there. Um, there's more, you know, you shoot a live stream and it's, it's done, it's out there. You shoot a commercial and there's just usually more shoot days involved. There's things that can't easily be changed. I mean, it's just, it's messy. There's a lot of productions that have been obviously called off and rearranged and that's going to be the norm for the next six months as well, you know. Uh, it's going to be absolutely normal that a production is scheduled three times before it happens. Uh, but we have to kind of accept that and roll with it, I guess. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks for this, Blaine and... It's been a pleasure. Been I, I, I wish I asked more questions about you, Luca. Can we do the same thing in reverse sometime? Yes, yes. Just set up your own podcast. And <laughs> yeah, we could be waiting a while for that. We could vote for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, man. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, to know more about Blaine's work, um, guys, you can check out his website um, and his Tiny Arc uh, website as well. And I put them on in the episode description. Uh, and for more audio weekly or almost episodes, don't forget to follow and share Carpe Diem on social media. You can listen from all the main streaming uh, platforms. Uh, find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Castbox, Stitcher, etc. Uh, links is you can find the links on the, at the website carpediem.podbean.com. And please leave a comment and a review. It would really help us to rank up in the searches. I hope you enjoyed our chat today. Until the next one, ciao.